I think as human beings, we love to be amazed, don't we? We love to be amazed. It doesn't take much to capture our attention and, wow, if it's amazing, great. (laughs) And I think it's a trend that isn't going away. Let me give you an example. I know that between 1944 and 1999, there were six Marvel superhero films made in Hollywood. Well, listen to this. Between 2000 and 2022, there have been 70 Marvel superhero films made in Hollywood. And you know, there are plenty more in production. And here's perhaps the, the, a surprise. In fact, the biggest revenue generators go into the cinema to watch these fantasy films with fictional comic book characters. And I've seen some. This is not a, a dig at superhero films. But they're not children. <laughs> they are us. They're adults. Well, maybe it's not a superhero that amazes you. But I'm sure someone does. Maybe a sportsman or a sportswoman. A musical performer or artist, a professor, a scientist, a famous person in history. However, if you're a Christian, well, I hope whoever amazes you here on this earth pales into insignificance when compared to the Lord Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus was and is the Son of God who died for our sins in order to make heaven a possibility for us all, if we'd only but believe in him. Jesus is a genuine superhero. But unlike these comic book characters, he is real. And like so many of those, unlike again, so many of those superheroes in these films, which seem to have a flaw or a weakness, that the bad guys always seem to find out. We're told time and time again in Scripture, Jesus was perfect. No weaknesses. Sometimes, though, I think if we're honest with ourselves, especially if we've been a Christian for a number of years, when we read an account like John chapter 9, which Dan has just kindly read for us, do you know we read it and we're not as amazed as what we once were? We become familiar with some of the miracles of Jesus. We can find ourselves reading that account as we would read any other book or as we would read any other news report on our phone. So three points for us as we look at John chapter 9 tonight with God's leading. Firstly, an amazing miracle. Secondly, an amazing testimony. And thirdly, an amazing saviour. Firstly then, this is an amazing miracle. And I just want to highlight four ways, there are likely more, but four ways that I think this is an amazing miracle. And the first is very simply this. Imagine if this had taken place in Belvedere High Street today. Imagine the response. If someone who had been born blind, man or woman, had miraculously received their sight today, what would happen? Well, I tell you what I think would happen. Sooner or later, someone would put it on Facebook or Instagram. News would spread rapidly. And I would have struggled even more than I did tonight finding a car parking space (laughs) because of the amount of news reporters here. It would be... (laughs) 
it would certainly go around the country. I think it would go around the world reasonably quick. The world would be amazed. They'd be desperate to know more. When? Where? How? Who? So when we read about what really did happen 2,000 years ago, well, we should be stunned. Secondly, I think it's an amazing miracle because the method Jesus uses, well, it simply defies all human logic, doesn't it? Uh, A few years ago, before we'd moved down to Ashford, um, I had an allergic reaction in my right eye. And at the time at Hayes Lane, uh, we were blessed with a, an eye surgeon in membership, Tim Cochranick. I know you know Tim. And so I rang up Tim and I said, Tim, here are my symptoms. Do you know what? Tim gave me lots of advice for my right eye. The one thing he didn't say was, Malcolm, go out into the garden, make some mud and stick it on your eye. The method defies all human logic for restoring sight. And that the method is also interesting because I think it helped those present and it helps us today to also understand the heart of God's law a bit better. You see, John tells us very specifically in verse 14 that it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. If you know your Bibles, you'll know that God had commanded his people in Deuteronomy to not work on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees regarded Jesus healing someone as work. However, in this account, specifically by making clay, and John records that in verse 6, verse 11, verse 14, Jesus also very directly broke one of the 39 additional laws that the Pharisees had added to God's law of how they interpreted what was work. You see, interestingly, in the New King James Version of the Bible is excellent for this, that the same word that is translated directly as clay is the same word for dough. And they said, no, if you make any dough, if you make any clay on the Sabbath, well, that's breaking God's commandment. So as far as the Pharisees were concerned, Jesus had broken God's law twice now, firstly by making the clay and then by healing the man all on the Sabbath. Yet surely Jesus is just teaching his disciples Reminding us again that it is our intentions, it is our motives that are more important to God on the Sabbath than man-made laws and traditions. Especially if they hinder us from sharing God's love. So the method defies human logic and I, I think it also aids our understanding of God's law. Thirdly, it's an amazing miracle because here Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. And he is declaring himself to be the promised Messiah. Isaiah had said 700 years before the Messiah would come in chapter 35 verse 5, then the eyes of the blind will be opened. Now across the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, by my count, no, I haven't missed one here, there are 37 miracles recorded of the Lord Jesus Christ not including the greatest miracle of of all, the resurrection. And all of these miracles point to Jesus being who he claimed to be, God's own son, the promised king. However, if you're an individual that likes specifics, well, here in John chapter 9 is a specific miracle that the Jews living at the time would have known to look out for. When the Messiah comes, he will open the eyes of the blind. 
then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Now I don't this evening want to in any way detract from any of the miracles of the Lord Jesus, whether that be the the feeding of the 5,000, the the calming of the storm, uh, the healing of the high priest's servant's ear. But here is a miracle where Jesus undeniably fulfills scripture to show everyone who he is. He is the Messiah, the Holy One of God. Lastly, it's an amazing miracle because it's, it's undisputed. Notice that John records the fact that this man had been born blind. This is important for John that his readers understand this. This man had been born blind. He records it four times. Verse 1, Jesus saw a man who was, born, uh, was, was blind from birth. Verse 2, the disciples reiterate he was born blind. The parents confirm the fact in verse 20. Finally, you have the blind man's own testimony in verse 32. It has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. So this is important for John. You see, John wants us to understand this isn't a case of temporary blindness. This isn't a case of an allergic reaction or dirt in this man's eye. This isn't the first cataract operation in history. No, this is a miracle of sight being fully restored to a man who had experienced and endured permanent blindness since birth. And even in 21st century Britain and indeed around the world, um, I've got an eye surgeon friend who's very qualified, we cannot fully restore the sight of someone who is born blind, even with what God has allowed us to understand about the human eye. It is also an undisputed miracle based on the testimonies that we read across the chapter. And I think perhaps the most weighty testimony of all is actually from the Pharisees themselves. Now the Pharisees, this sect of ultra-religious Jews who were jealous of Jesus and would have done anything to disprove any miracle of Jesus, they didn't want to accept Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus had pointed out their hardened hearts before God how they looked for the praise of men more than seeking the praise of God. They would have done anything to disprove this, and yet it's the Pharisees who, by verse 26, they have to acknowledge that a miracle has taken place. That they've met the man, they've probably seen the neighbours, they've also met the parents, they question the man again, and listen to what they say. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? They are acknowledging a miracle has taken place here, but they cannot dispute. How did he open your eyes? So whatever way we look at this this evening, it is an amazing miracle. Imagine if it happened today. The method defies human logic. Jesus is directly fulfilling prophecy, proving himself to be the Messiah. And it is an undisputed miracle. This man was born blind and even the opponents of Jesus acknowledge a miracle has taken place here. Well, let's move on. An amazing testimony. I can only imagine how incredible it must be to have a testimony of being healed of physical blindness. What a testimony to share. It's it's a radical one, isn't it? Perhaps just like this man, someone here is a testimony of God's power dramatically at work in their life. 
But it's wonderful to have testimonies of God's power and goodness. But, but maybe you're sitting there and I'm standing here. And, and although we've seen God's power at work, we don't feel that we've got quite the same dramatic personal testimony like that of the man in this text this evening. Well, I want to remind us all that as incredible as this man's healing was, the far greater testimony in this account is actually a testimony that each of us can relate to if Jesus is our saviour. Look again at the passage. You see, verse 11, in response to his neighbour's questions, this is what the man says. A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes. A man called Jesus. At this moment, Jesus is just another man to him. Perhaps a good man, someone who's helped him out. But he's just a man. You see, it starts getting more exciting as we see God's grace at work in his life. Look at verse 17. In response to his first questioning by the Pharisees, where they ask him, what do you say about him? You can almost sense that the cogs have been turning in this man's mind. Well, well, actually, this is incredible. This man has given me my physical sight back. He's reflecting on his interaction with Jesus, and this time he replies, well, he's a prophet. So he's gone from seeing Jesus as a man to seeing Jesus as a prophet in the space of six verses. And then finally, we read that Jesus finds him in verse 35 and says to him, do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, Lord, I believe. From man to prophet, from prophet to Lord, here is the most amazing testimony that anyone has to share. And if we are trusting in the Lord Jesus tonight, well, praise him that you too have that testimony to share. There is no such thing as a Christian who has a pretty average testimony, a boring testimony. Every Christian has a radical story to tell. We were once spiritually blind, and now we see. We were once sinners, deserving of God's wrath, heading for hell, and now by the grace of God, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection, we have the hope of heaven. We've been forgiven. We are being transformed. If you're not a Christian here this evening, well, I need to ask you, who is Jesus to you? Just a good man? Someone who was a great teacher? Spoke with real wisdom? Someone who seemed to have time for other people? Is he a prophet? He used to work with a a Muslim friend, a dear friend. She came along to church a, a few times. And she always used to come up to me and say, Malcolm, we have so much in common. Islam and Christianity, they're almost the same. And I always used to have to sit her down and just patiently say, we're completely different. You think of Jesus as a prophet. Christianity tells us that Jesus is God's son. He is God himself. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, the Bible is clear. And Romans chapter 10 verse 9 tells us very clearly, unless we confess Jesus as Lord 
and believe that God raised him from the dead, we will not be saved. That is the pathway to being saved, confessing Jesus as Lord. That is how we avoid separation from God for eternity. Now before we move on to look at Jesus, I think there's some really good application for us as Christians, as God works actually in this man's life. So I've got three C's for us to to take away. Firstly, I want you to notice how this man is consistent. Whether he's talking socially to his neighbours or whether he's under the spotlight publicly being questioned by the Pharisees, do you notice he is consistent in sharing his testimony? A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received my sight. That's what he says to the neighbours, verse 11. And then talking to the Pharisees, verse 15. He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Again in verse 25, I was blind, now I see. The core message of what Jesus has done for this man stays exactly the same. He's consistent. Well, I wonder whether or not we're consistent when we share our testimony of what God has done for us. Because if I'm honest, there have been occasions where I've thought, I need to adapt what I say here. You see, I became a Christian when I was 12 years old. And when I became a Christian, one of the big driving forces uh, is what God's word tells us about the reality of hell. And I knew I was a sinner. And I was fearful of God's judgment. And so often when I think, well, time, you know, I've got an opportunity to share my testimony. I better not start with God's judgment. That, That might put them straight off. I used to find myself at secondary school, I know what I'll do, I'll, I'll share about how I enjoy going to church. How I've got some friends at church, actually they're pretty normal. Well, most of them were. <laughs> some of you. I'll tell them about how the Bible actually really teaches me good principles for life. That's how I'll get started. Later on in, in life, I found myself talking to my manager or directors or shareholders even, and then thinking, well, I've got to make my Christian testimony sound as intellectually stimulating as possible. I've got to impress this clever person. No, I think we're reminded here we just need to be consistent. (laughs) We were sinners. I'm a sinner saved by God's grace. Jesus is my Lord and Saviour. I believe he died on the cross for me. He rose again. And now I know... The peace that only God can give that transcends understanding. And I have the hope of eternal life. I don't have to fear God's judgment. All because of what Jesus has done. Secondly, he's, he's wonderfully courageous, isn't he? <laughs> it's one thing talking to your neighbours the way this man does. But surely it's another thing to just boldly debate with the Pharisees in, in public with, with real consequences at, at stake. And I wonder when his parents were called upon, whether or not he just had that sense of momentary relief. Oh, here come mum and dad. Oh, they'll help me out. They're going to stand by me at least. They'll back me up with what I'm trying to say about Jesus here. But no. Verse 20. This is what they say. We know that he's our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. And we read, they knew the consequences. You know, surely this man is now crushed of all confidence. 
And yet, there is even more courage. And when the Pharisees question him again, I think there's even a hint of sarcasm in his response in verse 24. Uh, They say, give God glory, we know that this man is a sinner. But the man answers, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. (laughs) Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And then you read that account, and I'm just knocked back. (laughs) And as a a man desperately trying to seek God and to proclaim his word, you know, that what I read goes on to give me great confidence. I pray it will give you confidence as well, because, you know, God amazingly uses an uneducated man, a man who has likely been a beggar from childhood, an outcast in society his whole life, to debate theology of the highest magnitude with the most religious, educated, confident public figures of his day. He doesn't know all the answers, but that doesn't stop him from sharing what he does know. So when we're struggling to let our light shine, when Satan tells us, as he used to do, tell me, and still does on occasion today, Malcolm, you're terrible at sharing the gospel. Where's your courage? Well, turn to John chapter 9, because if God gave this man the courage and indeed the words that he needed to say, well, so we are promised in Scripture, the Holy Spirit will give us the courage and the words we need to say. Now, we might not receive that courage overnight, but I do believe if we are faithful in asking God, he will give us courage. Do you know, in John's Gospel... There's a character who turns up in chapter 3, Nicodemus. I'm sure you know the account of Nicodemus well. He was a Pharisee, and he goes to see Jesus at night time, doesn't he? Because he's afraid of being spotted by anyone else. And yet, in chapter 19 of this very same gospel, that same Nicodemus, seemingly a man of little courage, goes with Joseph of Arimathea to take Jesus' body down from the cross. And you know, you read that he takes with him over 40 kilos of myrrh. Do you know, I often think to myself, if people didn't see Nicodemus going publicly to take Jesus' body down, they would have smelt him going. <clears throat> what an increase in courage. Lastly, his testimony is compelling. He's consistent, he's courageous. And it is compelling. His testimony is compelling. Verse 25, one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. The Pharisees are intent on trying to win this growing argument about Jesus. They're trying to trip this man up. They want him to deny what Jesus has done. They want him to deny Jesus. Yet his testimony remains compelling. Well, retired American pastor, although he's still very busy, John Piper, he says this, a good testimony always wins a bad argument, and an argument against Jesus is always a bad argument. (laughs) I like that. A good testimony always wins a bad argument, and an argument against Jesus is always a bad argument. People can't dispute our testimonies. They, They can argue over what we deem as fact, And what they deem as fact. But they can't challenge our testimony. Testimonies are our individual experiences. 
They're powerful. And by the grace of God, they are compelling. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Oh, lastly, an amazing saviour. Reading chapter 9 in context really helps us to see that everything Jesus does is planned and purposeful. Everything Jesus does is planned and purposeful. If you've got your Bibles open, just have a little look back at chapter 8, and in particular verse 12. Well-known words of Jesus. Chapter 8, verse 12. This is what Jesus declares. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. A claim, if you recall, as as Daniel was reading to us, Jesus made again in verse 5 of chapter 9. And what better way of proving that he is the light of the world than by taking a man out of spiritual and physical blindness and bringing him into spiritual and physical light? Jesus is the light of the world. And then if you've got your Bibles open, look forward a chapter into chapter 10. In chapter 10, again, well, lots of John is well known. Chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus declares himself to be the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. And then in verse 14, this is what Jesus says, I know my sheep and am known by my own. I know my sheep. You see, do you see how chapter 10 then fits also in so well with chapter 9? Jesus knows his sheep. Now, you're going to have to forgive me for this, because I know this is subjective, but just bear with me. Just imagine for a moment how this man felt after being thrown out of the synagogue. That's sometimes lost in translation. That's as good as being thrown out of the community. I wonder how he felt. No one seemingly willing to stand by him, even his own parents. Was was he still feeling as positive? Did he still have that strong, courageous sense that he seemed to have when he was debating with the Pharisees? Or had the world started to wear him down a little bit? Yes, he had his physical sight, but had he lost his life as he knew it? I, I think it's actually quite logical and even natural to assume... Do you know, he may have been in quite a low place, mentally and indeed spiritually. He likely had some doubts over the things that he had experienced. Who really was Jesus? Why had I taken such a strong stance to defend this man? I knew what was at stake. Did I make a mistake? But we've got chapter 10. Jesus knows his sheep. And you see, just as it was Jesus in verse 1 who saw this man in the first place, well, I think it is wonderful, isn't it? Verse 35, it is Jesus again who finds this man. And if Jesus is our Lord and Saviour, well, again, we can relate to this, can't we? Maybe a specific moment, or maybe it was over a period of time when Jesus found us. You see, when you read chapter 8, 9 and 10 all together, you begin to see what an incredible sequence of events they are in revealing God's grace to us. And never overlook the willingness of Jesus to place himself in harm's way in order to fulfil God's purposes. 
That's why I asked Dan to start reading from verse 58 of chapter 8, because we we read, didn't we, the Jews have picked up stones to stone him. Now, I've got to be honest with you here. If I'm one of Jesus' disciples, you know know what I'm saying to Jesus? Jesus, lay low now for a couple of weeks. (laughs) Don't do anything radical. (laughs) Don't heal anyone just for a little while. They've just picked up stones to stone you. And yet... Verse 1 of chapter 9. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Do you know, as John is narrating his gospel, this isn't a couple of months later. Maybe a moment or two has passed since the end of chapter 8, but everything that John tells us indicates this is almost immediately after the Jews had just picked up stones to stone Jesus. Now I think it is right... As I alluded to earlier, I think it is good for us to ask God for courage and to draw encouragement from the man in our account tonight. But when we come to look at the courage of the Lord Jesus, I think we need to step back and look in awe at Jesus' courage. And yet here is just a glimpse. The full extent of Jesus' courage combined with his immense love for those that were put their faith in him took him all the way to the cross. Because that was his purpose in coming, to make a way possible through his death for sinners to be saved. You see, everything with Jesus is planned and purposeful. And an amazing saviour is worthy of our worship. Verse 38, then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. What a way to bow out in scripture I think it's a great way the last thing we read about this man he may have been followers, a, a, a follower at later points I don't know but the last thing we read specifically about him is that he worshipped Jesus the man recognised Jesus as his Lord as his saviour and he instantly knew Jesus was worthy of his worship A number of years ago now, my grandma Lavelle died at the age of 100, and she went to be with her Lord and Saviour. And we as a family actually had the privilege of, my mum is one of five, and we were the family visiting her that day, which happened to be her last day. I think my father read a psalm to her, and I prayed as we spent time with my grandma. And my uncle was also there. And he recorded her last words on this earth. This is what they were. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. Thank you for your love. Thank you for helping. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you, Jesus. Still worshipping Jesus 86 years after her walk with the Lord began. Why? Because just like this man in John chapter 9... My grandma was once darkness, and Jesus had transformed her to light, light in the Lord. And she knew, up to her dying breath, that Jesus was worthy of her worship. So how I pray, brothers and sisters, that whatever else is said of us, that when people think of us, they would say, He was a worshipper of Jesus. She was a worshipper of Jesus. 
an amazing miracle, an even better testimony. And we have the most amazing saviour, don't we?